America knows war. They are war masters. We tortured some folks. So I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. You bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. You were born with democracy choices. You have free election right, but we don't. Please help us. Patton Rod Save the World. Welcome to Patton Rod Save the World. It is the week ending 7 March 2015. I'm Pat Brown. I'm Roderick Macon. And uh, today we're talking about the future. Well, we're going to try to talk about it, guided by some very interesting thoughts by a chap called Yuval Hariri. Hariri? Harari. Oh, is it Harari? Uh, Hariri is actually an Arabic name. So okay, yeah. It's uh, H-A-R-A-R-I. Harari it is. Yes. Okay. Um, and there was a very interesting interview between Harari, who is a historian that lectures at uh, Hebrew University in Israel on edge.org, which is, if you're interested in ideas, probably the most interesting place on the internet. Yeah. Um, the interview, it's, a, it's about 40 minutes long, um, but it is a very interesting 40 minutes. It certainly is. Um, it's a wide-ranging conversation, but I think that there were several themes involved, um, and maybe we can sort of lay those out at the start. First of all, it is his opinion that people will become, in many ways, or at least the large majority of people, superfluous. Yeah, um, just in terms of uh, probably what we think of now as the urban proletariat, um, as technology advances and there's no longer any need for um, people to make things. That's it. Um, that uh, there, there won't really be any sort of use for society in vast numbers of people. He also disputes as an ancillary point to that, that the masses will have the power to decide their fate in this dystopia uh, because the power of the masses, in his view, is was a historical anomaly of the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah. And the third interesting idea here... Um, connected with the inevitable stratification of society and the empowerment of elites over or at the expense of the majority is this idea that death will be optional for at least a certain number of people. So let's talk about this idea of people being superfluous. Yeah. Um, I thought he, uh, he made some interesting, uh, interesting points here and it was a very clear... Uh, logic, and I mean, you can sort of see it in the, um, uh, you know, technological advances just in the past uh, 20 or 30 years, um, as people, you know, have been replaced in factories all, all around the world by machines, uh, and if that continues, um, you know, what do you do with these people? Um, and there was also the, uh, the point he was, you know, making um, in terms of, uh, you know, military advances as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the two great uses of the elites with the general population being A, work in the factory, or B, um, send them out with a gun to be a soldier. Yeah. Um, and that both of these were going to uh, sort of just fall by the wayside. Um, so he makes, I think, a really interesting point in the sense that he says, really, what you need to keep in mind is that a great driver of people becoming superfluous is the fact that we have specialised the roles of people in such a way that they are eminently replaceable by computers. Yeah. And he uses a very good example in terms of a taxi driver where he says, look, the function in economic terms of a taxi driver is that he gets you from point A to point B. The rest of his capability is actually unnecessary for that economic purpose. And so far as economics is concerned, is irrelevant. So if you can build a machine that fulfills his economic role, you put him out of a job, and if he doesn't have any other skills, he's basically useless. And I think that this is an argument that makes a lot of sense, and he, he highlights the fact that this is because you have a decoupling, as he puts it, between um, uh, intelligence and consciousness where essentially you can have an intelligent device or a device that has the ability to make intelligent decisions at, on one way of looking at, at it without that device being sentient. So you don't even really need 
sentient artificial intelligence, as it's classically understood, to replace a lot of what people do from day to day. And he says that this is really the driver that makes the masses unnecessary in a way that they ne- have previously not been. Yeah. Interesting point he made there, that I thought, while he was talking about this, was that um, it'd be uh, not only impossible to create a machine that could replace a hunter-gatherer and all the things that a hunter-gatherer had to do to survive, yeah. but in terms of your standard factory worker who works to live, you can make something really easily to replace that guy. Comparatively, um, absolutely. So um, so as the more, the more civilised we become, the more uh, replaceable we're making ourselves. Um, I thought it was an interesting point. It's a fascinating um, point. Um, but uh, sort of, on, you know, on that issue of, um, uh, of superfluousness, um, I thought he, he, he definitely was coming from a position where, and he, you know, said this a number of times, um, where the power of the masses was no longer really a thing. Um, and I... I can see the logic behind what he's saying there, but I disagree with it. Um, I think that certainly in the medium term, um, that, uh, yeah, when you're talking about billions of people, uh, actually, no, I'll just go back a second. Um, Another thing which I uh, disagreed with him about he mentioned places like China and Japan and things like this quite a bit throughout this, but he was definitely coming from a very Western orientated viewpoint. Um, there was no uh, real acknowledgement, I thought, that the West is not going to be uh, a major player in 50 years' time. Um, I think, though, that his basic argument is that the West will remain preeminent power-wise, so long as it remains technologically preeminent, which seems to be a, a trend that is only accelerating. Yeah, that's a point. Um, I suppose that maybe it's just me because I've been, for the past uh, 15 years that I've been thinking about it, just convinced that we're sort of living in the last days of um, the preeminence of Western civilization. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. I'm not convinced of it myself. I, I see the argument for it. But to sort of clear up the first point, I basically agree with the idea that there are going to be a giant number of people who have serious difficulty or find it impossible to, to find an economic role in a society where you have incredibly sophisticated machines that can replace a lot of people in specialised roles. I mean, we basically don't disagree with him on that, do we? And it's a question of extent, really. I suppose the only thing that we might find something to disagree with him on is exactly how far that phenomenon will go. He seems to think that in a world where you produce enough intelligence, even if it's not sentient, that you can basically render everybody superfluous. And you then have a moneyed class that was part of the process of rendering everyone superfluous, who are then an elite that maintain their power at the expense of the overwhelming majority of people and then who the weren't other, part of that process, yes. basically. Uh, and, you know, the potentially more important uh, aspect of, that, of his thesis there, that the overwhelming majority of people will be powerless to do anything about it. Well, and that's the next interesting point, yeah. yeah. Are the masses as impotent in this dystopia as he thinks they are. And I, yeah, I don't think so. You agree with him a bit more on that. I I agree with him more. Um, And I suppose there are a few reasons why I take his arguments in that respect more seriously. Uh, First of all, I see a very disturbing change in the technology industry that I'm sort of tangentially involved with from this hippie-esque, utopian, ideal Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s towards an Ayn Randian, libertarian, quite extreme right-wing Silicon Valley in the uh, noughties continuing into the teens of the 21st century. What do we call this decade? 
Is it teens? Do the we, teens, do we, do, does it have a does it have a I know that name? The, yeah, I mean, it seems that we don't figure that out until it's over. Yeah, like it's naughties is stupid. I always thought that was a terrible. Yeah, I, I use it because it seems to be <laughs> the, the go-to term. Yeah. Anyway, not important. So I suppose, and the other thing that convinces me that it's possible for a very small elite to subjugate the um, the the mass of people uh, is is two reasons. First of all, if you look at history, that seems to be the predominant mode of human operation until the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, which he that's it, yeah, which he mentioned, and industrial revolution, Russian revolution. That's yeah. it. Let, we'll get to the rhetoric yeah. and the importance thereof later as a counterpoint to what I'm saying. Yes. And, and second of all, I think the reason I take him a bit more seriously is because, having lived in the Middle East in the occupied territories, I was amazed at just how effective a small number of people who are sophisticated could be in oppressing and controlling a much larger number of people. And you could actually see the occupied West Bank as an interesting dystopia model for the future, where you have a special class of people, the settlers, who require defence from the, the majority inhabitants of the geographic area, the Palestinians. And with technology and the preeminence of defensive nation-state capability, so from what I could see, that's eminently possible. There are tens of thousands, of, or sorry, hundreds of thousands of settlers. I think it's 200,000 at least. Yeah. That's the number I have in my head. Um, versus three, three and a half million Palestinians. And the Israelis were carrying it off with aplomb. It was doable. Yeah, uh, where I disagree, and I, I, that's a, a really good analogy, that, um, that one. But where I disagree with it, um, and it's where I think he's overlooking um, uh, places like India and China, which are just going to become more and more important, is that you're not talking about millions or even tens of millions. You're talking about billions of people um, that you're going to be trying to control. I agree. Um, and when you're talking about those sort of numbers, yeah, um, yeah, uh, you, I, I think uh, in, in, in trying to uh, keep them subjugated with this, you know, all the superior technology that you're going to have, mm. you're going to have to be killing hundreds of millions of people. Um, and uh, are you though necessarily if you just kill enough and you satisfy their basic needs here's the world that I am concerned about people taking a soma-like substance from Aldous Huxley's <laughs> uh, Brave New World playing video games and subsisting on what they think through virtual reality is tasty tasty soylent <laughs> I can imagine a world where the population is the, the larger population is disincentivized with force, but there's also like a pull effect. It's not just push. The carrot is that you can just hang out in your dungeon at home, attach yourself to virtual reality, and have a life that's not real. Yeah, it's possible. Um, with the, and the other option is to confront the droid army patrolling your street. <laughs> so you can fuck whatever porn star you like, in virtual reality, eat the most magnificent Matrix-like three-course degustation meals in the world's best virtual restaurants while you're high on Soma, or you can walk out your front door and have a crack at one of the droids that has an AK-47 or probably a much more advanced weapon at that juncture. Hmm. I, I can imagine a world where that's possible. The elite in your mind are a much more intelligent lot than, than the elite in my mind. Um, <laughs> Yes, I, I would not contend that the elite is an intelligent mob. Hmm. But by their aggregate behaviour, they tend to do pretty well for themselves. And right now, America is a spectacular example of the elites essentially capturing what are rhetorically democratic institutions. This is probably a reasonable segue to the point that I think is really, it mitigates his arguments. It's so important that everyone believe that they live in a democracy, whether or not they do, that I think if things got too overt, if you did have a dystopia to the extent that he's saying is possible, yeah. 
people would no longer believe that, and I'm not sure that's a stable society. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, on the uh, on the issue of uh, military um, capabilities to subjugate lots and lots of people, mm. um, he was making the point about. Uh, you know, in terms of armed conflicts, but like wars and that sort of thing, numbers of soldiers aren't important. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was making the point before that when you're talking about subjugating your own population, that's not the case because you're living in the same place. Um, and uh, you've got around that by your droid army. Um, I have, yeah. Unashamedly. The droid army sounds ridiculous at this juncture, but in 50 years, much less so, I'd say. I mean... Even in the 1990s, the idea of flying killer robots was a pretty wild idea, and that's now par for core. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look on YouTube and you see things like the Boston Dynamics Big Dog, uh, which they now can attach guns to, it's essentially a kind of a cow where it looks like a giant dog without a head. Yeah, it's and, weird. And, and it has the ability to walk over very, very um, uneven ground. It can essentially sort of get around and, and, and it's imaginable that this thing can now have a gun turret attached to it with a good system. Put a good, put a good AI in it and you've basically got Skynet. Well, that's, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, uh, yeah, at a yeah. certain point, they, these things will also become autonomous and there's a lot of debate in military circles about how ethically you make uh, things that have the capacity to kill people autonomous. <laughs> yeah, anyway, anyway. Um, uh, uh, another point that you just raised there, and which I think was a, a major blind spot for Harari, um, was the, uh, the issue of keeping all these people fed. Um, mm. He, uh, he basically just wrote it off with a sentence um, saying, oh, well, technological advances uh, will mean that food's not a problem, which is a, I thought was just a bizarre thing to say and um, I think indicative of someone who probably doesn't pay any attention of, of where his food comes from. I wouldn't say it's um, bizarre. I agree with you that he's underemphasizing it, but if you look at the Malthusian predictions that have taken place over the sort of 150-odd years... You know, humankind has always found a way and has actually improved the number of people who are um, subsisting on a kind of... They're able to eat to the extent that they require. Now, you're saying that we're, in, we're at a time where there are atypical factors that could actually bring a Malthusian world to pass. I mean, the thing is, there, I mean, there are certain things that are you know, inarguable facts at the moment, and that is that the amount of arable land that is able to produce food yeah. is declining every single year. I can't remember how much um, the percentage. Yeah. Um, uh, meanwhile, the population of the world is rising every single year. Uh, and then you add um, the, uh, uh, the decreasing amount of potable water uh, in the world. Mm. Um, and to just assume in a sentence that that's not going to be an issue um, and that technology will find a way for everyone to be uh, fed and watered um, without, a, without a hitch, mm -hmm. uh, I think is a, is a major blind spot. And why I think it's important with, to this discussion about um, uh, uh, a small elite subjugating the masses um, is that there is a certain desperation that comes with not being able to eat, yeah. not being able to, uh, not being able to live. Mm. Um, and when it gets to that level of desperation, where it's overthrow the elite or die of starvation, um, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, you, you will see people going out and taking on the droid army. Um, and well, another thing which he didn't mention um, at all in his thing, um, and it was, uh, it was a point he was making about um, there's such a disparity uh, or there will be such a disparity in the next 50 years or so between the elite and the masses 
um, that it will be analogous to, say, the peasant uprisings of the Middle Ages or or before that, mm. where, sure, there were, there were masses who were being downtrodden and they were angry and they tried to rise up, but they just got crushed and no one ever heard about it, um, is that uh, now you have, uh, you have the media and you have the internet and uh, the elite can't just crush people without the whole world seeing it and, you know, being outraged and uh, attempting to do something about it as well. Um, See, it's a far more difficult thing now for a country to uh, subjugate its own masses. I have two points to make okay. in response. First of all, I agree with you. The food is a big issue. If he's wrong about the food, if uh, subsistence living becomes a problem yeah. for people, I think that that does have an extra special impact. And you can actually, there are a lot of people who argue that the Egyptian revolution that really kicked off the Arab Spring. Yeah. I mean, first of all, there was Tunis, but the Egyptians really got it rolling. It was because there was a shortage of bread. Yeah. Um, who was saying that? Uh, um, it's actually I, well acknowledged. Yeah, I, I mean, there's I, no one in particular. The news has just I, been quite clear about the yeah. fact that that was a huge factor in making, in, in fermenting dissatisfaction. I read that somewhere. I can't remember. Anyway. Yeah, because the military actually controls the production of bread for the most part, which is really important for uh, most people to live. And there was a shortage of bread, and that was a huge issue that kicked off. So I take your point. I, I basically agree with you. I'm not sure whether or not humankind will have the ability to feed itself over the next few years. They say that uh, the population will probably flatten out at around 9 billion. But there are a lot of assumptions built into that, and who knows? I mean, it's impossible to know. It's Malthus and his followers have been wrong for a very long time. And... Uh, so, I mean, I, I suppose what I'm saying, though, though, the second point is that even if you do have subsistence problems food-wise, imagine, like, I think it's hard for us to imagine a world where incredibly intelligent, inanimate objects have the ability to inflict violence on people. And I can imagine a world where there are cameras in every conceivable nook and cranny and those cameras are ceaselessly monitored by algorithms searching for trouble with a flying swarm drone army that can be at any trouble spot within a matter of seconds all of this controlled <laughs> automatically without any human intervention i mean that shit is possible in 40 years time and I just have difficulty imagining a large number of people being able to defeat that kind of technology capability. And the next point is we talk about rhetoric, okay? And I think that this is the key. I think this is where his arguments either are correct or not. If the elites can figure out a way to keep people thinking that they live in something approaching a democracy, I think they've got every chance of managing to have the run of the mill. Um, and a great example of how sophisticated and clever and how apathetic the masses actually are is the NSA surveillance. That's a fundamental change in the relationship between the nation state and the individuals who live inside of it. And while there was a few roar amongst people who follow the news for a period of a few months, it's died down. And you know the NSA is back to its old tricks. Now, I can't see that that kind of initiative by an unaccountable intelligence apparatus is consistent with democracy. I actually think, I mean, to my mind, that is the death knell for democracy. But it seems to have passed without a great deal of incident. And so provided the rhetoric continues, where everyone continues to think that we do live in a democracy, when I would contend at this point we actually don't. Uh, and we just haven't realised it yet. I don't think that the masses will even be mobilised to resist. Um. I don't think uh, the masses could cease to matter, not because they don't have the ability, but because they're incapable of actually doing anything. 
That's a point. I don't think that uh, belief that you're living in a democracy or otherwise is necessarily a prerequisite for the masses mobilising. Uh, is that? I, I mean, I just think that it's super important to the average guy on the street to think that he's not living in a dictatorship. I actually do think you could rouse people to action if you had a majority of people who believed they didn't live in a democracy anymore, that they were no longer important, that they were subhuman, yeah. that the people with the special capabilities for extending life who control the vast majority of capital and live incredibly luxurious lives, seemingly at the expense of the majority, I just don't think the average person is going to be okay with that. There's a lot of history yeah. to, to bear that out. But what I'm saying is if the elites or these this sort of techno elite that this guy envisages manages to keep people convinced that they do live in a democracy, even if they don't, there, there's actually a way that the masses can become unimportant by dint of their apathy rather than their capability in a raw sort of okay, physical that's a, that's sense. Okay, that's a better way of putting it. That it's Probably, just, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm basically finding a way to his conclusion via a different route. Yeah. That's not what he argued, but I think that's eminently possible, and I see that trend already with recent events in the news. Yeah. Um, again, though, I, it's a very Western way of looking at things, and whenever I think about the next 50 years, I think about China and India. Mm. Um, and um, and uh, just on that point, it's... Um, uh, a lot of what he's talking about, a lot of what uh, that you're talking about in terms of uh, the ability of an elite to um, subjugate unhappy masses via technological advances, yeah. um, I, I think is uh, is missing the thing that in the next, you know, twenty to thirty years, let alone fifty to sixty. Um, you're going to see massive changes in the world coming from India and China. Um, and technology isn't at a point yet, um, and won't be in the next couple of decades, where billions of people can just be ignored um, and, and shoved into a corner. Um, yeah. The thing is, though, I, I agree that I have a bias towards the West, and I think that's a good point to, to check one's own thinking with. Nonetheless, what I'd contend is that they're becoming more like us. And so you can argue that in 20, 30 years time, the principles that I'm talking about that are admittedly quite Western centric will be a far more accurate way to describe them in the future than they are now. That's possible. Um, but uh, yeah, I just don't know enough about Chinese culture Neither do to I. really speak to that. I it's, a, it's an oversight on my part. I mean, uh, it's not as though I haven't, you know, studied a bit about Chinese culture at uni. I did a bit for my bloody useless international relations degree. Mm. Looked quite a lot at Chinese culture and yeah. and things like that. But I still don't know enough about it. Put it this um, way, though. I mean, I would argue. Look, there, there are actually very few places in the world where you can see disparity between rich and poor, while everyone just accepts it, than India. India is famous for yeah. its techno elite, where you have individuals worth billions of dollars living literally in skyscrapers above slums where people can't eat. And they manage to muddle along through that. You could actually argue that India is ahead of us in that respect. That's true. And that... You know, they are actually the best indicator that a small moneyed elite can repress a large majority of people. I take the point that you're making, though. Yeah, I mean, no, that's an interesting. Yeah. So, so far as India is concerned, now China is a different story, and I think the interesting thing is, is basically, I still think they're going to become more like us than the other way around. And the question is, when they become sophisticated en masse, in a way that you would say the West is, how much like us will they be? And you could argue that they're going to look very much like us because the trend line 
is clear. I mean, you can get away with things in China now that were unthinkable even five, ten years ago. The pace of change there and the increase in freedom of expression sort of... Is that, has there really been an increase in freedom of definitely. expression? Definitely. It's widely acknowledged. I've read a number of articles about it by people who know what they're talking about. It's basically not disputed. Okay. Um, it's always, as with everything, two steps forward, one step back, or half a step back, but um, there's no question that you can say things in China now that you could not say five or ten years ago. Um, and if you extend the time scale a bit, it's incontrovertible. Um, 20 years. Obviously. I mean, look at the Hong Kong protests. I agree it's an island, it's an yeah. atypical case, but the Chinese government of the 1980s, the Tiananmen Square Chinese government, there's no way they'd have truck with the umbrella protesters, even if they were in Hong Kong. Um, and this, I think, is kind of... We've talked about this Well, before. that actually uh, goes into sort of the point I was making before. Yeah, it totally does. A, a yeah. Elite can't send in the tanks and just kill people. No, they can't. <laughs> I, I agree with you on that. I, and I think that it's the rhetorical difference. We've discussed this before, where we live in a world now where the masses don't accept overt oppression by governments mm. in a way that they used to. And herein lies the rubber, I think. I, I think that if this guy's dystopia is is plausible, that it will be the iron fist in the velvet glove. Uh, that's at least the way I see to getting to where he's at. I mean, even if I do describe a world where you basically have barbed wire fences and, and cameras and flying and cameras and swarms of drones with guns attached to them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very bleak future we're discussing. <laughs> it, well, it is. I mean, this guy's view of the future seems to be innately bleak. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, Although he's got some very interesting discussions about Silicon Valley as a place for producing new religions. And it's anybody's guess how influential those religions will be and how much they will go towards assuaging the existential angst of a population living in a dystopia. I'm going to listen to some of his talks later on today, but yeah. um, just to, uh, we've uh, we've been discussing this very bleak dystopia for half an hour now. Mm. Is it worth uh, just thinking about for a moment um, a future where things just kind of model along as they're going along and don't uh, result in a massive uh, power disparity and dystopia where most people are living terrible lives? Oh, look, honestly, I, I have difficulty imagining a world where disparity doesn't increase purely by dint of the fact that we both agree that masses of people will become not useful for the predominant economic model. That's, uh, that's true. Um, if we both but agree what way, you know, of the current economic model what changes could be made? Yeah. In okay. Next, this is fascinating. What yeah. changes could be made in the next uh, few decades? Yeah. Um, that all the people who would um, be made superfluous by increasing technology um, having something else to do. Basic income. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and a possibility. Um, Work is optional, basically. Yeah, but uh, a possibility that I was thinking of before when we were talking about um, uh, decreasing capacity for food production and how, how important being able to eat uh, and produce food is going to become. Mm. Um, there are things that can be done to um, basically reverse the trend of, uh, of arable land decreasing. Um, there are things you can do to uh, improve uh, soil health um, and basically reclaim land for food production. Sure. Um, and uh, I was just like, you might see basically a re-emergence of uh, of the peasant class, really. Um, people who would have otherwise been sitting in a factory putting buttons on a shirt or something. Um, well, there, there is a trend, ironically, with people who have the money to pull it off, <laughs> of essentially going back towards what would have been considered a peasant-like existence. Yeah. 
um, the organic sort of food movement, people who have the money buying themselves land and basically living from a vegetable garden while they tend uh, enough animals to keep them in meat. Yeah. Um, That's an interesting and point. Yeah, yeah, so if enough sort of, uh, if enough uh, land is sort of rejuvenated um, to, uh, to keep producing food, um, you might see more people, you know, heading back out and sort of being put to work um, on this land, which could be done by technology as well, um, but, but potentially a smart government uh, would um, think, well, here's a use for these people, um, and it's, a, and it's well, a use that benefits the world as well. You can, you can see essentially a world where people revert to being quasi-peasants producing, like, organic food. Yeah. Um, in ter- like in terms of uh, government or elites finding a use for masses of people yeah. that is actually of benefit to both the people and society as a whole. I can't see how they're not going to be replaced by agro-robots, though. Well, I mean, there's already self-driving, I, I, there's self-driving tractors on a rice field in southern New South Wales at the moment that they're trying to trial. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, you can produce, I mean, just because it's organic doesn't mean you can't produce it with machines. No. Um, it's an interesting theory. But the thing though. is, like, if you're going to actually, um, if you're going to try and find things for people to do, um, a very stupid elite would just say, no, you're all fucked and we're using nothing but machines. Yeah. Um, and I think potentially what happens in China is a bit of a model for that. Like the, China could be a lot more um, automated than it is, hmm. but it recognises the need to keep its billion population employed and productive. Yeah, I think this is maybe, when you talk about muddling along, I think that an important part of that is that the elites never see themselves as evil. They see yeah. themselves as guardians of order. And the inevitable outcome that they're better off under that order than anyone else is incidental so far as they're morally concerned. <laughs> but... I do think there's a good chance that there will be a compromise of sorts. Yeah. Um, and I see that compromise arising in the form of something like a basic income, where there's enough wealth distributed to basically allow people to subsist. The elites continue to make gobs of money. Yeah. Um, technology network effects and a kind of natural tendency towards monopoly will continue apace and there will be a fantastically rich techno-elite and a large majority of people who just continue to subsist and, and work if they feel like it. And I think a really interesting... What, what worries me, though, is that the elite is becoming more evil. Uh, I, I see a clear tendency in that direction. You have guys like Peter Thiel, um, billionaire investor in Facebook... Um, guy who was a founder of PayPal, who unapologetically argues that competition, this is in his words, competition is for losers. That really the only way to create stable value over the long term for a business yeah. is to create a monopolistic business. And that's been met with a, a lot of agreement, that thesis. Yeah. And he would know. Um, I don't see a great deal to mitigate his arguments either. So I do think well, that I, that economic trend is clear. Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, the problem with that, and if we're talking about, you know, technological advances coming from Silicon Valley and the rest, well, you know, we have to talk, you know, we have to talk about where American politics and way of thinking about life has shifted in the past yeah. 30 years. Yeah. Um, and it has basically been a massive shift to the right. Yeah. Um, the window of political discourse yeah. has definitely shifted right. Um, and, uh, and basically, when you get right down to it, right-wing political thinking is 
all about selfishness and greed. Um, I wouldn't agree with that. At least, I, I think that that can be its effect, but I don't think that that's the, I mean, those are... That's, that's not how they put it themselves. No, no. No, but that is the effect of it. Not always. I mean, there's a certain amount of sympathy for, that I have, for doctrines of self-reliance. I suppose the difference is between me and many of them. I tend to leaven it with an appreciation of um, the fact that the perfect playing field that they advocate will never exist. Mm. And that perfect playing field seems to be the predicate to, to many of their ideas. And what I suppose, to get back to what I was talking about before, concerns me is a tendency towards the Ayn Randian view of the world. Selfishness and greed. But they don't consider it that. Yeah, but they... You and know, I'm not sure that it's selfishness and greed. Um, it is people operating in their own self-interest, and I think that that's different to the term selfish, which is innately pejorative. Like, there are a lot of people who agree with this, and I'd hesitate to use the pejorative term to describe them. I wouldn't. You wouldn't? No. Mm. I think there's a certain idealism to what they say. And just to fill people in who aren't familiar with the writings of Ayn Rand, and honestly, I only listened to the audiobook version of the first half of Atlas Shrugged. I couldn't get through it. Which was enough I, of it. I, I read maybe 100 pages. And yeah. Just, yeah. It's, it's, Life's too short. Yeah, and I understand that perspective. I mean, I thought it was a fascinating book in the sense that it is just so... How do I put it? Melodramatic. Just bad writing. Among yeah, other I, I was like just it's, it's honestly one of the worst pieces of writing. It, I mean, but the ideas are interesting, and the the, the basic idea from Atlas Shrugged is that there are the uber capitalists that drive society forward, and these lily livered, self-aggrandizing idealists who are essentially parasites to that system who are interested in distributing wealth. And basically the uber-capitalists who, who have this drive and ambition to make the world a better place essentially get together and say, you know what, we're sick of being hampered by the hangers-on. We're just going to go and build ourselves a utopia and you can all get fucked. Now, I mean, I think that the reason that that's such a successful novel is there's a kernel of truth to it. There are a lot of useless hangers-on. And capitalism, in my view, is the engine for human progression, at least over the last few hundred years. It's been, for the most part, successful. So, yeah, it, um, it has been capitalism... Like, the, the biggest um, uh, steps forward, though, in terms of society as a whole, mm. has been when economic growth uh, through capitalism has been married with um, effective government control um, that doesn't just allow a small elite yeah. to uh, enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. I agree with, no, with that completely, yeah. wholeheartedly, 100%. I don't think that untrammeled capitalism is a solution. Yeah. At all, and That's where it. and where I say is yeah. that over the past couple of decades, if you're talking about American uh, politics, yeah. there has been more and more of a focus on just allowing people to uh, enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else, with no with a cutting back of safeguards and safety nets, and all the things that were supposed to help everyone else along as well. Yeah, I mean, so there are two separate issues there. First of all, the idea that the rich and powerful are taking advantage of the government for their own ends. Yeah. Any right-winger who is sort of ideologically, you know, well to the right of most mainstream right-wingers would say that crony capitalism is actually an outgrowth of the state and that that's an argument to scale it back. What they, I mean, and I sympathise with that idea. I yeah, mean, I do it, think it, that it seems to me a, a sort of thing like the NRA said. It's self-serving, yes. right? Yeah, sure it is. Yeah, you know, people but, are getting shot with guns. Well, we need more guns. But that doesn't—it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Crony capitalism is a major problem, um, and it seems to be an inevitable outcome from a capitalistic system that's 
controlled in part by a government, by an entity with a monopoly over the use of force. The whole welfare thing is an interesting one in the sense that you will not find any right-winger who thinks that people, well, people of this right-wing persuasion, who thinks that people should be given money for nothing. So to the extent that this set of ideas becomes more influential, it reduces the possibility of the muddly compromise where people get yeah. a basic income. And Rand ended up drawing a pension. Did she? Yeah. That's beautiful. What a hypocrite. Well, absolutely. What no, no question. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, she certainly was an idealist, um, <laughs> except for the complete hypocrisy of how she ended her life. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So, I mean, look, I suppose I think that these sort of extreme right-wing ideas do have a kernel of truth to them, which is what gives them their power. And furthermore, gives them power in the halls of power. That's really why they are important, is because a lot of powerful people actually sympathise with them. Yeah. And bringing it back to the original discussion, mm. those ideas, I think, have now filtered through to Silicon Valley and the people in charge Oh, no of question. Valley. The people yeah. in charge of Silicon Valley are, for the most part, libertarian. Yeah. And they are not believers in the nation-state's ability to solve major problems. They essentially, um, I mean, there's a real strain of uh, corporate anarchism, which is the idea of essentially an anarchistic arrangement without a central authority that is um, uh, driven for the most part by corporations, which to my mind is a pretty scary prospect. But um, and, and this sort of pure libertarianism where you have the idea of the government essentially taking care of nation-state defence and that's it. Uh, yeah. I mean, my personal thing uh, is that in general people should be allowed to do whatever the fuck they want um, and that a government is uh, should be primarily there to provide a safety net. Mm. Um, but to be an effective safety net um, requires a... Uh, relatively high degree of, uh, of control over the top end of town. Yeah, the, the other the, the problem with having a safety net, and I mean, I personally think that you just deal with the 10% of people who are useless, who are going to abuse the, the quote safety net. And by deal with, you mean just... Just you, handle it. Yeah, just be do, okay with you, it. Yeah, exactly. That's, you're, not, that's, you're not going to be able to change it. No. There will be people who Always. abuse the system. Yeah. But... I think it's just a necessary cost of having a system that's humane. Yeah, um, we, we agree. We agree on that point. Um, but that is where I depart from them. Yeah. They will never accept that. They're, because essentially the upshot of that is as rich capitalists, they are paying for people who are using the safety net as a hammock, to borrow an old political <laughs> phrase. They will never accept that. Um, and so I think that the flavour of this new elite, if you want to call them that, is, is one that is less compromising at the same time as being weirdly more idealistic and ideological than the sort of post-World War II compromise that arose yeah. and held quite stable through the 60s and into the 70s, which started kind of into break the 80s, down. Really. Well, it, it broke down in the 80s, the 80s yeah. yeah. So, I mean, whether or not we end up in basic income world or, like, 1984 world... But, I mean, that basic income world... This. Yeah, I mean, because that would rely on the elite choosing for themselves mm. to hand money to the masses. Um, do you think that's more likely than them handing money to the government to the government to hand to the well, masses? Well, I think that the self-image of the elite is what's determined. And they don't want to consider themselves evil. And I think that probably for the majority of these people... And by the way, I'm the first to acknowledge that we're using very blurry concepts for this discussion. Yeah. I don't it's even know a, how just... the fuck we're going to define this elite, except for the fact that they're kind of technocentric, Silicon Valley-esque, kind of Peter Thiel-esque yeah. elite. I think that it's more likely for them to create a compromise with something like a basic income than it is for them to build droid armies to essentially have a worldwide occupied territory that requires um, massive amounts of force to keep it under control. Yeah. Um, 
because the, the problem for I think the right the right wingers amongst this rising elite is that all of their ideas are in a sense self-contradictory because by pursuing their uber capitalist dreams they render people irrelevant and make it inevitable that something like a giant welfare state yeah. is like it is just a kind of an outcome of their activity so it's like they can say on one hand we don't believe in welfare we think people should be self but it's like well dude you're creating a world where no one has anything to fucking do yeah and um, i can't imagine that that would be lost on all of them in the future You'd hope that it, uh, it, hope so. it filters through at some point. We haven't ended up even mentioning uh, the other thing from Harari about uh, the extension of life. Death uh, being optional. Yeah. yeah. For the, uh, you know, uh, as, you know, medicine um, continues to, uh, to advance, it'll become less about... Um, Curing sickness, curing sickness than as it is about upgrading and extending life. Yeah, and that will be only available to those who can afford it. Yeah, and he didn't make this point, but I actually he probably meant to make it. Um, it's logical to my mind that part of the reason for this is the aging baby boomer generation, which yeah. is the richest generation that's ever existed in the West, um, and they have every interest in uh, remaining as healthy as they possibly can until they shuffle off the mortal coil um so i mean we could talk about that for five minutes i think it's an incredibly interesting idea that perhaps a, a stabilizing force in society has always been the idea that doesn't matter how good the rich have it in the end we're all equal yeah. via death now if that consolation can i call it consolation yeah. is removed well if that equality gets removed like that is the that is the ultimate equality, um, and if that's gone, well, uh, you know that is, I think, potentially a, a revolutionary problem. Yeah, in the sense that the the sheer injustice of being able to cheat death while a majority of people cannot. Yeah seems to my mind to be an intolerable thing for large masses of poor people to endure. Yeah. And he also said, I mean, his basic point in this respect was that the idea has always been this capitalistic model of trickle-down technology where the rich get it first, they um, uh, 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 make it a mainstream phenomenon, and then everyone else gets access to it. You know, mobile phones being the oft-cited example. But his point was is that if masses do become useless and less powerful if we take both of those points as given that means that it's quite possible that there won't be trickle down because what yeah. money will the masses have to purchase this new technology to make it go mainstream and yeah. become cheaper i mean if if we take his point as a given then arguably you do end up in a world where these kinds of upgrades biological or even digital upgrades, depending on how funky you want to get, um, don't necessarily become mainstream, then you are talking literally about the creation of a new species. A species with money. <laughs> and that's weird. Uh, I can't believe, by the way, that no one has made a solid movie about that prospect. It seems to me yeah, a, I, I didn't... such fertile ground for Hollywood. I didn't see that one with uh, Matt Damon last year, but wasn't that like a... a what, what was it called? Uh, what was the one where there was like an elite living up in ships in the sky and then masses of poor people on the, on the ground and he, he uh, tried to get up to... Oh, that's right. I didn't say it because I heard bad reviews. Shit, what was it called? And was the that... first 20 minutes of it were excellent yeah. and the last... Hour. I, I remember you you had gone and seen it, and I, I didn't. But was that roughly touching on those sort of things? Yeah, to some extent. Um, to be honest with you, the only only the first twenty minutes of the film interested me, and they interested me a lot. And then you can tell the producers and the money guys just got involved and said, "Oh, look." Matt has to save the world and this has to be a Hollywood sob story to get mainstream. Snowpiercer. 
No, not Snowpiercer. No, that no, was no, the that, train. I'm, I'm talking as in uh, touching on the themes of Snowpiercer. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting of one. A, I mean, in turn, it, it put the entire world on a train um, rather than on the globe. But there was the completely downtrodden, poor masses at the back of the train being fed goop made from insects. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I mean, and as they moved up the levels of the train, you got to the small, very uh, rich elite. Um, inequality. There's no yeah. question. Inequality is in the zeitgeist. It's just that there has not been a mainstream movie made about the implications for mortality. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like Justin Timberlake was in a movie. I didn't even bother to oh, see that. I did was, not even bother to see that. It was bad. And I just had movie. no idea why the hell they needed to create the artifice of the time thing. Yeah. For like, I suppose, to drive their plot. But it was just completely implausible and ridiculous to my mind. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to when Hollywood gets his act together and decides to make an independent film, probably, um, about this kind of issue because I can imagine humankind essentially splitting in two different directions uh, where you have people who are being upgraded using incredible medical technology and basically continuing to grow their wealth over, with compound interest if that continues as a mainstream economic phenomenon over a period of extra decades immense yeah, wealth would accrue in that way you eventually get the Eli and the Morlocks Sorry? Um, you eventually get the Eli and the Morlocks. What's, what's that from? Uh, it's from The Time Machine. Oh, I've not um, seen that. Um, Is that a book or a movie? It's a book and it's been a couple of movies. Right. Um, and uh, you go far enough in the future um, and uh, you've basically got a small amount of very advanced, um, almost superhuman people who live... Um, uh, and then you've got... Um, yeah, basically the the ugly underclass who uh, every now and again just rise up and try and kill as many as they can. <laughs> Out of pure spite. Yeah. I mean, people are not above that. So I can imagine a world where it gets very contentious. Because my own view on this is when you start to look at things like medicine, healthcare, these things are probably where the state should intervene. Because it seems wrong that some people would have better health outcomes than others yeah. as a general rule. And I think for the most part, with the exception of America, the West has accepted that premise that medicine should be the domain of heavy regulation to keep access to health services relatively equal. Yeah. And that gets in the way of a lot of innovation, I'm sure. At the same time, though, I think it's a, a necessity and so that's actually another interesting question. Whether or not in a world where the West has basically reached a consensus on socialised medicine, in that world, can the elites get a monopoly over medical advances? Hmm. I think uh, something we probably haven't touched on, though, is if... Um, I mean, we were talking before about, uh, you know, if... Um, China and India continue to advance and grow and gain uh, preeminence in the world, mm. and if they're going to become more like the West, would they look at America and see a broken system, or would they say look at a Western model of, say, Scandinavia, which is very much about sharing the wealth? Yeah, um, so here's, I think the and problem... And say, well, one of these things is clearly working better than the other. Uh, for everyone. <laughs> The problem is, is that the people who make the decisions are the people in the, quote, elite. Yeah. And they're going to look at America and go, the elites in America are better off than the elites in Finland. Yeah. But when you're talking about, say, China and India, yeah. where you, where the masses are in number in the billions, yeah. and there is far more scope for that sheer mass of people to overthrow the elites if things get really bad... Um, does uh, an elite decision maker in those countries have more of an eye on the fact that, you know what, probably better for me in the long term to look after these people a bit better? Or am I just uh, putting a bit too much faith in human nature there? I think you might be putting 
too much faith in human nature. There's not a great deal in the way of sort of historical. There aren't many historical examples of elites voluntarily giving up power in the interest of what we would call enlightened self-interest. The impulse tends to be one that they hold on to power, um, even at their own expense if there's a revolution. I mean, so I mean, you'd say that like the Scandinavian Norwegian model, um, in particular, would just be a historical anomaly. Um, I can't see that that kind of thing would work in a society like India, where sure the caste system has been abolished formally, but god damn, the poverty that exists alongside like the kind of riches and scale of wealth that you have in India in some places is just amazing. In fact, arguably, in terms of at least in absolute terms, the, the spectrum there aren't many other countries where you can see that many people with that much money living alongside that many people with that little. Yeah. You can go to a Nigerian dictator and see a few people living in incredible luxury with poor masses. But, I mean, there is a significant class of people in India that do have enormous amounts of money. Yeah. India really interests me. We don't know know enough about it. We don't talk about it. Yeah, I agree with Um, you completely. We don't have time to go into it now, but I really... It... um, it was concerning me during the week um, that a rising superpower, as India thinks of itself, and as it frankly deserves to be thought of, mm, gets so little attention and really gets a free pass from pretty much the entire world, despite the fact that a lot of awful, really awful shit happens there. Uh, maybe that'll be a, a, something to talk about in a, another point. But um, what the hell do you talk about? Because the world doesn't pay attention to India. We don't... <laughs> no. And maybe we should um, basically, we could do an entire discussion on why the world doesn't pay enough attention to India. But probably we've um, exceeded our time yeah, at this point, go. so let's call it a day then. Right, yeah. All right. Uh, until next time, this was Pat and Rod Save the World. Um, find us at uh, on Twitter, at Roderick Macon. And at PJ Brow, without the N. Yeah, or the website, www.patandrodsavetheworld.com. Yeah, and um, by all means, email us with your views on these incredibly expansive, interesting topics. Yeah, do you think uh, do, do you think that Harari's really bleak dystopia um, is uh, is more likely than not, or will uh, humanity muddle along and find a way to uh, just keep getting better? I one thing just quickly before we finish. Um, when we're talking about bleak futures and things like that. Um, I think that doesn't really take into account that for the overwhelming majority of humanity, life has been getting better for the past few thousand years. Thousand years? A few hundred years, I agree, but there were major regressions. There have been regressions. Over Um, thousands of years, though. Yeah, but you'd say that... um, uh, say a person in the uh, say 1700s mm. would probably have been better off than a person in 3000 BC. Oh no question, um, no question. Like so, humanity has been incrementally getting better at life, um, and uh, and quality of life for people has been getting incrementally better. Um, is it uh, is it wrong to just assume that that will be reversed due to um, elites gaining power of uh, unimaginable levels of power through technology? Um, and no, for the, for the overwhelming majority of people, I think things just get worse. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And where if if you continued that, you would end up in Aldous Huxley's world. Yeah with Soma and video games uh, and an apathetic majority yeah. that allows the uh, minority to have the run of the mill. Yeah. I always thought that uh, Brave New World's model uh, Better was, than, was, a, yeah. was a more uh, realistic model yeah. than 1984's. I thought 1984's was actually a better book 
Um, it yeah. was a much more powerful novel. And more enjoyable. And, and, and uh, really hit me in the guts. Yeah. Um, but I thought that Huxley's model was probably more realistic. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I had exactly the same thought reading it. Yeah. yeah. Huxley just got the kind of minutiae right, yeah. I think. Um, in a way that perhaps a guy like um, George Orwell, who sort of volunteered in the Spanish Civil War international brigades, he, he just couldn't imagine a world where people would submit. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or he imagined a world where people could submit, but that it was just such overt force. Yeah. Whereas Huxley was more subtle. I mean, and I think as a result of that, basically more correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another interesting topic we could fucking podcast about. <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, all right. we're probably uh, beyond the patience of our listeners. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for bearing with us, everybody. Yeah. Every we... now and again, we just talk shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't have to listen. <laughs> See ya. See ya.